0: Um, turn in your Bibles of course to Revelation chapter 5 and I kind of was trying to finish up last week and it got rushed and so we're gonna slow down and finish chapter 5 and get into the first few verses of chapter 6 Lord willing today so we're at the end of last week's outline at letter E on the back side and then there is another outline that I have passed out today that we won't finish but it'll give you a good study outline in the weeks ahead there's some scriptures and things in there that you might want to study we're not going to get into a lot of detail about some of the things introduced in chapter six because john goes into more detail later in the book but this will give you a way to study some things about the end times that you may not realize are talked about in other portions of scripture particularly in the old testament so i hope some of the scripture references Cross References will help you there. But last week we were talking about the parallels that exist between God's program of land redemption for Israel and an obvious program of land redemption that He has for the earth. We talked about the earth's kinsman redeemer, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The redemption price, not only for our souls, but for the earth was His shed blood. We talked about how when the kinsman-redeemer purchases the land, He keeps the land for His own purposes. In the same vein, Christ who purchased back the earth, as a result of its tenant possession falling into the hands of Satan in the Garden of Eden, He keeps it and administers it under His kingdom, as the Bible talks about during the millennium. We talked about the deed of purchase that was involved in these land transactions in the Old Testament. The deed of purchase was sealed. It was written on the inside and the outside. It was legal evidence of a transaction, particularly in cases where the kinsman redeemer purchased the land but wasn't able to immediately possess it, just like the example of Jeremiah in chapter 32. He purchased the field of Hanamiel, While Babylon Babylon was preparing to besiege the, or was preparing to overthrow the city and take over the land, so Jeremiah wouldn't be able to take possession of his plot, his uncle's son's plot, until many years later, and so there needed to be legal evidence, which in that case was buried in the earth in an earthen vessel, placed in a secure place. We then we talked about, and we I kind of wrapped up with the two responsibilities of a kinsman redeemer with regard to land, or even with regard to to a wife as well, not only to pay the redemption price, but to take possession and exercise administrative control. And what I'm trying to do here is establish that God has a program of redemption for the world that mirrors His program of land redemption for Israel. And so we know based upon Israel's land redemption program that the kinsman redeemer has two responsibilities. Purchase it like Jeremiah did in chapter 32 and take possession of it, something he wouldn't be wouldn't have been able to do for many years later when Israel when he I don't even know if he lived to be able to do it. I'm not sure. But it's interesting that in Revelation 5 Jesus Christ the lamb is introduced and the chapter relates directly to both of these responsibilities. So in other words, we have further evidence that what we have taking place in chapter 5 relates to the redemption of the earth and thereby thereby makes it very clear the identity of this scroll that the Lamb takes from the right hand of God. So, I just want to look real quick, I kind of summed through this. In Revelation 5, you have three titles given to Christ. Three titles. The first one is in verse 5. Look. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, for behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah, the Lion, the symbol of power, courage. Jesus had the right as the Lion of Judah to defeat Satan and his followers and to evict them and their rule from the earth. Turn with me real quick to Genesis chapter 49. 8 through 12. This is at the end of Jacob's life when he blesses each of his sons. And we have an interesting prophecy here of Messiah as relates to the tribe of Judah. It says in verse 8, Jacob's blessing to his fourth son, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. That's a reference to Messiah. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Binding his foal unto the vine and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. This identity of Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the slain lamb, ties him directly to this prophecy in Genesis chapter 49. Jesus Christ would come from the tribe of Judah. A lion and yet a slain lamb. And so, this lion imagery conveys authority, power, something a kinsman redeemer must have. So in Genesis 49, we have the lion, Judah as a lion introduced. In Revelation 5, we see his name, the lamb that was slain, Jesus Christ. So we discover in Revelation the identity of one prophesied in Genesis. It's not, it's not only with Christ, but it's also with Satan. In Genesis 3.1, we're introduced to the serpent. The serpent is the one who deceived Eve and tricked Adam into despising his tenant possession. Adam rejected the ordinance we talked about last week. His responsibility to administer God's earth and therefore the tenant possession fell into the hands of Satan. And in those moments, God promised that a day would come when the seed of the woman, Messiah, would crush the seed of Satan. And that telescopes all the way into the future, something we're going to see in Revelation. And so, we're not told in Genesis 3 that the serpent is Satan. That name's never used in Genesis 3. We're just told the serpent. But when you get to Revelation, we get his name. So here, not only does Revelation and Genesis tie together in terms of the identity of Messiah as relates to the tribe of Judah, but it ties together in terms of the identity of the serpent. Revelation 13, verse 9. I'm sorry, that's not, that's not correct. I think it's twelve nine. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent, called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So there we have the serpent identified. No question, that is Satan. So just an interesting parallel between Genesis and Revelation, not only with regard to the kinsman redeemer, but with regard to the usurper who took possession of the earth from Adam Jesus is also called the root of David here in Revelation 5 the root of David behold the lion the tribe of Judah the root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals so in other words it's a lion one with authority and power and courage it's the root of David this tie to David references Christ's kingly authority. He's in the line of David. Not only does he have the power of the lion to rule, he has the right and the authority to do so. This this term root in, of David reflects back on Isaiah eleven. In Isaiah eleven, we have a great uh, a great chapter which gives us an some insight into the nature of Christ's millennial kingdom. It's one of the famous messianic chapters in the Old Testament. And it tells us um, in verse 10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. A root of David, a root of Jesse, the same thing. Jesse was the father of David. A root. And what this connotes is that it's something out of dormancy... That comes forth to defeat enemies and give rest. A root, just like a root uh, cut down, a tree cut down, can begin to take root and bloom again. The imagery in Isaiah 11 is something that, lied, that lays dormant, springs to life to defeat the enemies and give rest. It's pretty interesting if you go back to verse 4 in this whole context of Isaiah 11, talking about the Messiah, says, But with righteousness shall He judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And He shall smite the earth with the rod of His mouth. And with the breath of His lips shall He slay the wicked. Okay, we look at that verse often and think the wicked plural. But it's actually singular. Paul refers to something in 2 Thessalonians as that wicked. Wicked or that wicked one. This is a reference here to Antichrist. Christ will slay the wicked one. And so we have this root of Jesse in Isaiah 11 that springs from dormancy to overthrow his enemies and slay the wicked one. Satan, superman, the Antichrist. And so this root of David mentioned in Revelation 5 ties back... Isaiah 11, and again it gives us this picture of right power, authority to rule, an overthrow of an usurper, and a period of rest that comes with the millennium. So here we see this imagery that reflects on the second responsibility of a kinsman redeemer to take possession and administer what he has purchased. The third title given to Christ is a little bit later in the chapter. I'm sorry, it's in the next verse. John is told, Behold, the lion the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain so we have lion of Judah root of David reflect on the second responsibility of the kinsman redeemer power and authority to rule and then in the next verse lamb that was slain reflects on the first responsibility of the kinsman redeemer paying the redemptive price so the lamb the lion the Root of David has the authority to rule because he was slain and paid the price. In John 1.29, when Jesus came to be baptized, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. In this passage, it says that this Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. We talked about the Holy Spirit being a sevenfold spirit. We get that right there from Isaiah 11. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of these seven things, that's listed there. That's talking about Messiah. When Jesus came to earth and went into the synagogue, He quoted that passage of Scripture and referred it to Himself. So the Lamb is Jesus Christ. Not only does He possess the Holy Spirit in His fullness, but He, possess, he, he is shown to have seven horns complete power and authority. Plentitude of power. So here you have a lamb, a redeemer, with complete power and authority. The two responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer brought together in those two verses and in this chapter. No question that the picture of Christ here is one of kinsman redeemer. And then it refers not only to the souls of redeemed men who were there in heaven at that time, but to the earth itself. So we have those three titles given to Christ. Look at verse 5, something else that indicates both of these responsibilities being presented in this chapter. Verse 5 again, The Lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book. This verb here in the past implies a previous victory by the overthrow of an opposing force. So it's looking back on a previous victory. Because of this previous victory, the Lamb has the authority to take the scroll and to open it. Well, what could this be referring to? Well, look down at verse 9. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to open the book and to open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us. So this prevailing took place when the Lamb was slain. The Lamb was slain on the cross, and as a result, men were redeemed. Christ, prevailing gained Him the right to take tenant possession. Now, I find an interesting thing that Jesus says in John chapter 16... Some say that these couple of chapters here were spoken to the disciples after the Last Supper as they were walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is telling His disciples that He's going to leave them, but He's going to send another Comforter, and that this Comforter of the Holy Spirit would reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Of sin because they believe not on Me, verse 9, chapter 16. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. The prince of this world is Satan. That title alone further proves what we've been discussing in terms of Satan, the usurper, took tenant possession of the earth and has been allowed to administer it from the days of the Garden of Eden until Christ takes it back and removes the curse now the prince of this world is judged what Christ was about to do after the garden of Gethsemane on the cross his burial and resurrection was judgment upon the prince of this world it was his doom and it ensures without a doubt absolutely certain what's written in Revelation 6 through 22 so the cross ensures Without a doubt, exactly what we're going to read about in terms of God's judgment going forward. A preface to Christ actually taking possession of what he's already purchased. Christ taking the scroll in Revelation 5 is the first step in his exercising his right. He's already paid the price that was at the cross. He's been gone for a time that the gospel might go out into the Gentiles and that Israel might be brought to a place of repentance. Then He's going to return and exercise His right. And that begins by taking the scroll from its secure place which was in the hand of God the Father. We have another phrase here in Revelation 5 that further indicates the relationship between The kinsman redeemer's first and second responsibilities. In verses 9 and 10, these elders sung a new song. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. So we have the work of redemption. And then verse 10, And hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So we have the work of redemption and the work of power, authority, and ruling right there together. The work of redemption is spoken of in the past. The first responsibility of the kinsman redeemer. The work of reigning or ruling here is spoken, in term, is spoken of in the future. Sometime future from the Lamb taking the scroll. So the Lamb takes the scroll. Redemption is spoken of in the past. Reigning and ruling of the saints is spoken of in the future from that moment. So this idea of the saints ruling and reigning on the earth is future from the point that Christ takes the scroll. So it's not now. The church is not reigning over the earth now, as the amillennialist or the postmillennialist would say. Open your eyes and look around get out of your living room, get out of the the, the comfort of your block walls at your church and walk the streets of an average town in America and you tell me the Christian church is reigning in this world. Or get off drugs. I don't know why you would come up with something like that. If you you have any experience, life experience, or if you traveled anywhere, there is no reigning of the church over the earth. The, The wicked Catholic church wants to reign over the earth. It's always wanted to do that. But that's not the saints spoken of here in Revelation chapter 5. Once again, Christ's redemptive work is associated with a future rule of the earth. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12, If we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. Again, the reigning of the saints is spoken of as sometime in the future. Now I find it interesting here In verse 9, we have 24 elders are here in this chapter. Just 24. And I've talked about how they represent the redeemed of all mankind. They sung a new song, the elders. Actually, that they ties directly, if you want to look at the nearest antecedent to the pronoun, look at the end of verse 8 the saints the prayers of the saints, and they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us, first person. So the ones that are singing are talking about themselves. Thou hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood, out of every kindred, every tongue, every people, and every nation. Could people from every tribe, tongue, and nation in the history of the world be represented by only 24 individuals? Literally, no. So there's a great mass of people in heaven at this time singing. Not just those elders. Those elders sit on those thrones as representatives just like our congressmen sit in Washington as representatives of us. But the saints are all there. Thou hast redeemed us. Whatever group is singing is people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's the church. The church, the saints, they. Who's they? Saints, the end of verse 8. They are in heaven. Proof that the rapture has taken place. The saints are in the throne room, throne room, throne room of God. Thou hast redeemed us. So we have the church in heaven before the start of the tribulation, which begins with the first verse of chapter 6. That's very significant. Now, I find this interesting. In chapter 5, verse 9, the King James Bible says, For thou hast redeemed us. Okay? If you look at modern versions, including the ESV which so many people think is so great, it's the newest Bible translation, it the, represents the latest translation, the latest research, as if the Bible's not been purely preserved at any time before that. But even the ESV doesn't say us here. It says them. It says, Thou hast redeemed them to God out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's a pretty big difference. Because if it's us, then the church is in heaven. If it's them, the church isn't necessarily in heaven and maybe is on the earth getting ready to go through the tribulation. So we have a problem there. Now, there are 95 extant or surviving manuscripts in the Greek of the book of Revelation. 95. That's all there's left. Ancient Greek manuscripts of the book of Revelation. 95 total that's been discovered. Out of these 95, only 25 actually contain Revelation chapter 5. So in other words, these other manuscripts, these other 70, you know, they could be rotted off at chapter 2, or it might only be chapter 11 through 22, or it might just be a few passages from chapter 18. So a manuscript isn't a complete manuscript. So only 25 manuscripts ex- exist in the ancient greek that contain chapter five of these 25, 24 out of twenty five read us to god in chapter five verse nine as do every single one of the reformation bibles every single one of the reformation bibles from the time of the reformation luther's german bible the italian bible the french bible the old spanish valera every single one of the english bibles uh, Wycliffe, Tyndale, Coverdale, Matthew's Bible, the Great Bible, the Bishop's Bible, the Geneva Bible, the King James Bible, and every single one of its editions reads us. And yet the ESV says them. There's something radically wrong with that. There's something radically wrong with scholarship that would follow one out of 25 manuscripts of variant reading and go against the entire historic testimony of the Word of God and its preservation down through the centuries in the hands of those that not only believed the book, but preached it and hazarded their lives for it. Unlike the so-called Bible scholars today, many of whom wouldn't even know how to share the gospel in English with the average man because all they know how to do is read Greek and Hebrew. Wouldn't know how to dig a hole in a piece of ground to use the bathroom on the mission field because they hadn't left their office. They hadn't got up from their desk or behind their little pulpits in their classroom where they indoctrinate and brainwash people that go to colleges and seminaries, causing them to doubt the veracity of God's Word. I speak with authority on these matters because I've been there and I've seen it. This is just one example of what happens time and time and time again in God's Word with some of these modern versions. I'm not a legalist. I'm not here to tell you that if you're not reading the King James, you're in sin or, or you're not right with God. But what I am telling you is be careful. I'm, ask, I'm warning you, don't put your faith in modern scholarship. It's okay to research. It's okay to compare. It's okay to look into these things. But the bottom line is God has preserved His Word. And we can trust what's been preserved here in this King James Bible because God blessed it for 400 years. It was the Bible of the Great Awakenings. It was the fruit of the Reformation. It was the Bible of the missionary movement. God didn't all of a sudden change in the 20th century. He didn't all of a sudden need a bunch of PhDs to figure out what His Word had to say. We can trust what's written here. Be careful. Because sometimes when you come to differences like this, they're not based (coughs) upon manuscript evidence. They're based upon the whims of scholarship. Working behind, they're based upon Satan and his deviousness. Satan doesn't just outright change God's Word. Satan twists it. He either takes away from it or he adds to it or he rips it out of context. Or he, he, he isolates a verse and rejects the rest of Scripture's testimony. He tried to tempt Jesus to throw Himself off the temple by quoting Psalm 91. And He left out a little phrase. Four words, In all thy ways. And then totally ignored the clear revelation from the Torah which says don't tempt God. And we can take a lesson from how Jesus responded to Satan's attempts to twist God's Word. Jesus responded with Scripture. You don't take an obscure Scripture and twist it and ignore the meaning of other clear scriptures. Deuteronomy is clear. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So it's very obvious that you, if you go out here and throw yourself in front of a Mack truck, Psalm 91 doesn't apply to you because you're, attempting, you're tempting the word of God. Or you're tempting God. And so Jesus' strategy there, it is written, is very important. Something we should employ. It is written. Three of the most powerful words that can come out of your mouth when you stand before those who would mock God, mock His existence, mock His revelation. But we can trust that us is the right reading of this passage and that it shows, us, shows the church to be in heaven. It baffles me that... And most people just don't know this stuff. Okay? They just aren't aware. But there's a clear example of where the ESV deviates from not only the Reformation... And all the great English Bibles of history that were used and blessed by God, but it deviates from the manuscript tradition. Interesting. Now, you'll have people say, well, out of 95 manuscripts of Revelation, only 24 of them read us. You you see how wicked that accusation is? Because only 25 of them even have Revelation 5. So you don't know whether it was in the rest of them or not. It's rotted off. That's wicked when a guy stands behind a pulpit in a classroom and makes a statement like that. That's devious, it's willful ignorance, and it's wicked. I stood in classrooms, I've been in seminary, I've been in college, where they try to tell me that 1 John 5, 7, that great Trinity passage in the Bible is not authentic. That it was added. And they'll sit there and they'll say, out of 5,000 Greek manuscripts, there's only a few maybe twelve, maybe fourteen that have it so it can't be God's Word. But what they don't tell me is that out of 5,000 Greek manuscripts, 4,400 of them don't even have 1 John 5, 7. It's rotted off. You see how wicked an accusation is like that? Twisting stuff, twisting facts. It's exactly what they do in the news media. Not, not only the, the, the secular news media, the political news media, but the sports media as well. Twist things. Just a little bit. We need to be careful with that stuff. We need to make sure that our testimonies to our fellow brethren and to the world are are clear and pure. And that we don't twist things just a little bit for our own purposes. You know, you can bear false witness without telling a bald-faced lie. I don't think we... Need to give all the truth sometimes. Sometimes we give more details than we need to and get in trouble. We need to seek the Lord's wisdom on that. But when we twist the truth, we're following the example set by Satan, particularly where his word is concerned. That's a side issue. I'm sorry, a little soapbox I had to get on for a minute. Forgive me. Back to chapter 5, we have these two responsibilities of the Kinsman Redeemer they're not only revealed in the titles given to Jesus but in the statement about prevailing in the statement about redeeming and reigning in verses 9 through 10 and then finally in verses 9 and 12 in these doxologies there's two doxologies or or uh, praises issued to the lamb in chapter 5 now notice when John at the beginning sees the scroll and thinks there's no one worthy to open it, He weeps. The Lamb takes the scroll. After He takes the scroll, there's no longer weeping, there's praise and adoration. And that's what we see in these doxologies. The first one is what we just went over in verse 9. Thou art worthy, because thou hast redeemed us by thy blood. So we have a doxology to the Redeemer. And then in verse 12, saying with a loud voice, "Voice worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. We have a doxology of authority. So we have a doxology that reflects on the first responsibility of the kinsman redeemer. A doxology that reflects on the second responsibility in verse 12. Because Christ redeemed, He is worthy to rule. He is worthy to take possession. I know I'm repeating myself tons of times, and I'm sorry, but repetition is what's going to put it right here. I want you to understand, I cannot emphasize enough that Jesus Christ is the kinsman redeemer. And because he paid the price, because he redeemed us, he has the right and the authority to rule. He's not just some ethereal presence up in the heavens. And we just die and we go up there and float around like a cloud and play a harp on a cloud. Jesus Christ is a king who will return to earth physically and bodily. He will take possession of what he has purchased and he will rule it in righteousness. A physical, literal return of Christ to exercise his authority and his right as a kinsman redeemer. So all of this from chapter 5, I've spent a lot of time on chapter 5, but I believe it's one of the most important chapters in the Bible. All of this, I believe, leads us to three very clear conclusions. And maybe you're not convinced, and that's fine. We can talk about it more. Number one, Christ fulfilled His first responsibility when He paid the redemption price at the cross. His resurrection then proved that the currency was good and that the transaction was accepted by God. Christ paid it at the cross. The resurrection proved that the landlord accepted it, that the currency was good. Number two, because Jesus fulfilled the first responsibility of the kinsman redeemer, Christ is worthy to take the scroll. He's worthy to open it. He's worthy to read it. And He's worthy to take possession of His purchase. And then finally, Christ, just as He purchased it, He'll take possession. Christ will do this, thus fulfilling the second responsibility of the kinsman redeemer. And we're going to see this beginning with verse 1 of chapter 6 all the way to the end of the book. So the rest of what happens in Revelation is tied in the things which shall be hereafter to what Christ does in chapter 5. It's all part of that. So it can't be separated and it's not just John repeating himself with mystic visions and declaring the same events over and over again. It's not some symbolic representation of, uh, of Domitian or Diocletian or Constantine in the history of the Roman Empire. These are future events that are tied together. Finally, all of this to say what is the sealed scroll? The sealed scroll is the title deed to the earth. Just like we have a title deed to a house, we have a title to a car, there's a title deed to the earth that was given to Adam in Genesis chapter 1 or the, the tenant possession. Adam despised it. It fell into Satan's hands. And since that day, Satan has been the god of this world, the prince of the powers of this air. Satan was able to tempt Christ and say, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all these kingdoms for they are delivered unto me. If that wasn't a legitimate offer, it wasn't a legitimate temptation. And Christ wasn't tempted just like we are. It was a legitimate offer because Adam delivered it unto Satan. And under God's hand of providence, he's been allowed to administer control of this world system. And we see the evidence of that all around. We see the evidence of that as he, comes, he tries to come against Christ's church. We see the evidence of that as he tries to come against the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham through whom Messiah came and for whom Messiah will come again. We see it as He pulls men and governments and societies into hell, leads them or deceives them into believing there is no God, where evil runs rampant in this world. The title deed to the earth, however, it was drawn up again when it was purchased by a near kinsman, Jesus Christ, the near kinsman to Adam. God became a man because only a man could be a kinsman of a man. Only God could live a perfect life, suffer the wrath of God, and survive. In Jesus Christ, God became a man. Christ purchased the redemption at the cross. A new title deed was drawn up. And just like in Jeremiah 32, it was stored in a secure place. So that during that interval of time between the redemption price being paid and the taking possession of what was rightfully His, the evidence would be safe the irrefutable evidence would be safe. And so when the time comes for him to take possession, there will be no question that he's the one that has the right to do it. So, the scroll, the title deed of the earth. Now, let's turn to chapter 6. Things are going to start moving fast in the book itself as we read. And again, these judgments that take place are tied to the Lamb and the scroll. The evidence of that is right here at the beginning. The Lamb not only took the scroll, He starts to do something else with it. And so the judgments are tied to the opening of the scroll. So the scroll presents itself throughout the rest of the book. Now, before we actually begin to exegete chapter 6... Let's pause for a minute, and I want to give you kind of a Revelation time frame review. Okay, Chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, we have the church age. That is the period of time between Pentecost and the rapture of the church. That is the great parenthesis, the gap between Daniel's 69th and 70th week. The peculiar program of God to redeem for Himself a people out of all nations. We are living in that parenthesis right now. Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, John is caught up into heaven as a type of the church. Here we have a type of the rapture of the church at this precise place it will happen in the future between the church age and the tribulation. Revelation 4 verses 2 through the end of chapter 5 takes place during an undisclosed period of time. Between the rapture and the tribulation. So, chapter 5, chapter 4, 2, and chapter 5 through chapter 5 take place between the rapture and the tribulation. Jesus' return is imminent for his church, and it could happen at any time, and no man knows the hour of the day because we don't know. How much before the start of the tribulation, the rapture of the church is going to take place? We can know the signs and the seasons, but we don't know the day or the hour. There's going to come a day, an hour, a moment, a second when the Father says to the Son, go get your children. And He's going to do it. We know it will be before Daniel's 70th week based upon a preponderance of evidence I've discussed in here. We know when the tribulation starts because it begins when Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel, Daniel chapter 9, 26 and 27. But we don't know when the rapture is going to take place. And chapters 4 and 5 are in that undisclosed window of time. So we need to be ready. I believe we're living in the last days. I believe it's close. We can't know the day or the hour. It's foolish to try to predict it like some people do. And then... I made a mistake here on the timeline that number 4 should be Revelation 6-2. Not Revelation 6-2, Revelation 6-1. I forgot to change that. Number 4, the tribulation begins with Revelation 6-1 and it will go through chapter 18 verses 24. And then after that, the book gets into the millennial reign of Christ and the eternal state. So now we're entering into the tribulation period. The Bible calls this same period in Daniel chapter 9 the 70th week of years. So it's a seven year period. It's also in Jeremiah 30 called the time of Jacob's trouble. Because its purpose is twofold. One is to pour out God's wrath on Satan and to unleash an incredible bombardment of judgment prior to Christ invading the earth and taking back what is His. But it also serves to purge and to wake up the nation of Israel. It's going to take bringing them to their utter end for them to realize that Jesus is their Messiah. And Jesus can't come back until Israel repents. The Bible's clear about those things. So, the Lamb's actions... Not only the titles given to him, not only the things that are said, not only the doxologies, but his actions with the scroll are very significant. In chapter 5 verse 7, the Lamb took the scroll from its secure place in the right hand of God. Now, Daniel actually sees this same vision, I believe, in chapter 7 of his book. Daniel sees what John sees in Revelation 5. Daniel just doesn't have any understanding concerning the presence of the church that John does in chapter 5. Turn to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Jason, would you read that? Saw in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man came to the clouds of heaven, and came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. In His kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So Daniel looks in the night visions and he sees one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Not coming to earth, but coming before the presence of the Ancient of Days. That's God, the one on the throne in Revelation 5. He is brought before the ancients of, Ancient of Days and He is given a dominion. The scroll is that that the Lamb is given in Revelation 5 is the dominion that the Son of Man is given from the hand of the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. So Daniel sees the same thing. Now the book of Daniel focuses on these end times and their relationship to the nation of Israel. Whereas the book of Revelation focuses on these end times and their relationship to the church, the world, and the nation of Israel. So we have... Scripture agreeing with Scripture. This is the same vision here. The Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and He's given a dominion. Authority. Tenant possession. And that dominion, unlike Adam, is an eternal dominion. Daniel just doesn't have... God did not give him the foresight or the understanding to see the church and its relationship to those things. But it's the same vision. The title deed of the earth. Now, this passage is significant because Jesus, when He's standing trial prior to His crucifixion, he's being all these false witnesses have come in and they're accusing Him of these things before this, the high priest and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. And He doesn't answer. He doesn't feel the need to defend Himself. There's a great lesson we can learn there. But finally, the high priest gets so angry he, ripped, he just says to Jesus, I adjure you. Tell us, are you the Messiah? And Jesus said, you say it. This is what I'm going to say. The days coming when you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. They tore their clothes and they went nuts, foaming at the mouth and screaming and shouting. What further need do we have of false witnesses? This man has spoken blasphemy. Here's the proof. We must destroy him. Jesus quoted this passage from 7.13 in Daniel. Why do you think it made the Pharisees so angry? Because Jesus, in that statement, was calling Himself the Messiah. The Messiah who would come with the clouds of heaven before the Ancient of Days. The Lamb that was slain who would come before the throne of God and would receive the scroll, the title deed of the earth, the dominion. Jesus was saying, that is me. So He did answer the high priest's question, are you the Messiah? Yeah, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of Man that will come with the clouds of heaven. Just not right now as you think I should be. Because the Jews of that day, the religious leaders, they were uh, motivated by political power. But this is all tied. That statement Jesus makes ties to the throne room in Revelation 5 and the vision of Daniel in chapter 7. This action of taking the scroll is very significant. In chapter 5, verse 4, before Christ takes the scroll, as I've already mentioned, John weeps. After he takes the scroll, as I've mentioned as well, there are tremendous, tremendous expressions of praise. There's great significance in that. Why? Why does weeping turn to praise when the Lamb takes the scroll? It's because the evidence that the scroll contains. The evidence shows Jesus to be the kinsman redeemer and that is why weeping turns to joy. Mourning turns to laughter because of the evidence that it provides. Christ, not Satan, not anybody else, not Antichrist is the true kinsman redeemer. Now just like Jeremiah's purchase would lie dormant for some time there was a great possibility that foreign squatters would come in others would come in to challenge his ownership of the land. Christ has been seated at the right hand of God from the days of the day of the ascension until his return. There will be challenges to his possession, challenges to his right. Satan the, the usurper will challenge. So there must be evidence Ever since the cross, Satan and his forces have continued to exercise possession of the earth. There's no question there. As Christ's return draws near, Satan's challenges will grow stronger and more frequent. The Bible says that Christ will take possession after Daniel's 70th week. And therefore, the challenges to his authority and his right will increase exponentially during the 70th week. We can read some various verses there and it shows how Satan will use strong, deceptive, and violent action to try and challenge what he knows is coming. We can see this in Daniel 7, Revelation 6, Revelation 11, Revelation 12 as regards the saints, as regards the tribulation saints that are saved, as regards the people of Israel. Satan will... Undertake violent, deceptive, strong action to challenge Christ's rule. Christ will not take possession of the earth until after Israel repents. There must be a national repentance of Israel before Christ can return as the Messiah. The Bible indicates that very clearly. Go read Zechariah 12 through 14. We can look at Acts chapter 3, Romans chapter 11. I'll just read one of these verses. You can go study some of these in your own time if you'd like. Romans chapter 11, 26 it says these words. Actually, let's go to verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Okay? Then, verse 26, and so shall all Israel be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So there's a moment in time in the future when all of Israel living at that time, not every Jew that's ever lived, No dispensationalist believes that, as they've been accused of believing. Jews aren't saved any differently than Gentiles in God's plan of redemption. But there's a time when all of Israel remaining, the remnant, will wake up and recognize Christ as their Messiah. There'll be a national awakening that will put the great awakenings in American history to shame. Because it'll be complete. And this must happen before Messiah comes. Those chapters in Zechariah 12 through 14 go into some more detail. And then you can read in Revelation 11 and 12 how Satan goes after God's two witnesses, how Satan persecutes Israel. You see, Israel must repent before Christ comes back, and Satan knows that. So who does Satan go after during the tribulation? Who does Satan try to annihilate? Israel. Because if Israel is annihilated, they can't repent, and he thinks Messiah can't come back. And you think, well, that's foolish reasoning. Well, there's some real foolish reasoning when it comes to Messiah. I was in Israel years ago, and outside the eastern gate of the old Jerusalem, the gate through which Messiah is supposed to come back, there's a huge Muslim cemetery right in front of the walls. On the opposite hill, across the valley, is a huge Jewish cemetery. Where you know, Jewish people really want to be buried there and there's like hardly any room left. And the Jews want to be buried there because they believe that's where Christ is going to come back on the Mount of Olives. And when He comes back, there'll be a resurrection and they can follow Him into the city. Well, the Muslims are like, well, we don't want the Jews coming into the city with their Messiah and taking the Temple Mount back. So if we put a cemetery on the city side of the hill, then when Messiah comes back, There'll be a resurrection of Muslim people and there'll be an army there to meet him and to stop him from coming into the city. They actually believe that. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, the eastern gate is completely sealed. No one goes in and out. There's a barbed wire fence. There's armed guards, armed Muslim guards that stand there guarding that gate to make sure they think that no one can come through it. And they think they're going to have an army that raises up from the dead to stop him. That's foolishness. That same foolishness comes down from the usurper who thinks he's going to destroy Israel. He's thought if he could destroy the church, he could keep Christ from rapturing it out. Jesus said, I'll build my church and even the gates of hell can't prevail against it. That doesn't work. So then he turns his attention to Israel and the tribulation saints. And you see that later in the book. We'll discuss that more in chapter 12 when Satan goes after the woman. He's ticked and he knows his time is short the dragon, so he goes after the woman, which is Israel. And the remnant flees into a place in the wilderness that God has prepared for her to protect her. And the dragon goes after, after Israel. And it says that the earth helps Israel and protects her. And so there's some interesting things there we'll get into later in more detail. But Christ does not cannot take possession until after the national repentance of Israel. Satan and his forces will make a great effort to annihilate Israel during Daniel's 70th week or during the tribulation so that they cannot repent. We see this in Daniel 9. We see all this talked about in Matthew 24, Jesus' Olivet Discourse, Revelation 12. This will be an attempt to rob Christ of a major key to His taking tenant possession of the earth. And then we see Armageddon. Armageddon is the ultimate challenge against Christ taking possession of what is His. The Scriptures indicate that at Armageddon, Satan gathers all nations to a precise location to which he knows Christ will return to take possession of the earth. And he's going to try and stop Him, to try and prevent Him from exercising His right. And this is what we see in Psalm 2, another great one of the Messianic Psalms. We see the nations gathered to prevent God's anointed from taking what is rightfully His. Psalm 2, the first couple of verses. Why do the heathen rage, and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder... And cast away their cords from us. That's what happens at Armageddon. Satan gathers all nations to a specific spot. A last ditch effort to stop. And he thinks he's going to have his Muslim army that's going to come up out of the graves. All of that. And none of it's going to work. Look what God says in chapter 4. In response to this gathering of nations. In verse 4. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. I've often quoted this while preaching... Uh, on the streets or at college campuses. You can laugh at this message, folks, but God gets the last laugh. He really does. God laughs at man's attempt to overthrow his, his rule and reign. God laughs at Satan's attempt to do it. It doesn't happen. God's on His throne. Let all the earth keep silent before Him. Armageddon is that ultimate challenge. All of these challenges from... The church age all the way up through the tribulation and Armageddon will necessitate evidence, irrefutable evidence, that Christ is the rightful owner and has the authority to take possession of what He has purchased. So, not only is it significant that He takes the sealed deed, but it is significant that He breaks the seals from the scroll. It's significant that He opens the scroll. And it's significant that He publicly declares what is written on the scroll. All of these actions are significant because they prove in the face of challenge with irrefutable evidence that Jesus Christ is the one with the authority to reign. So all of these actions are important. Christ has already taken the book, chapter 5. Let's see what happens, chapter 6. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. Chapter 6, verse 1, He's taken the scroll. In chapter 5, now He begins to open it. And we're going to see that when Christ opens one of the seals, I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. When Christ goes to open that first seal, John hears the noise of thunder. This is the image I get in my head. It's a balmy, Saturday, a balmy summer afternoon. Sunshine, but clouds on the horizon over the mountains. I love climbing in the Rockies, and in the summertime, there are apocalyptic thunderstorms in the afternoon. Every single day. So if you're going to be climbing above tree line, it's absolutely imperative that you get started at like 5 or 6 in the morning. Because you want to be heading down off the mountain by 11 or 12 o'clock. If you're up there after that, you're guaranteed to get a thunderstorm and you're, you can be in trouble above tree line. I know because I'm stupid and I haven't learned my lesson with that. I did a, a, a climbing circuit in Colorado a few years ago. I got caught on the summit of Mount Elbert in a thunderstorm one day. I had to race down the mountain. I was 10 miles from my vehicle. I had to hitchhike back to my vehicle. The very next day, when I went to go climb Red Cloud Peak and Sunshine Peak, I knew I needed to get started early. So I camped off this dirt road. I overslept. I knew I should have just stayed there and waited till the next day. Knew it. But I decided to go anyway. Got caught in a thunderstorm. I got to the summit of Red Cloud. I heard the thunder. I saw the clouds coming in. It's only a mile and a half to the other peak. I really got to get it. So I'll run over there. I get to the summit and then it's on me. I'm feeling static electricity. I'm scared to death. I have to end up running down the side of this mountain, lightning crashing everywhere. I'm very blessed that I didn't get killed. Didn't learn my lesson. So, I've got this image here of what looks to be a beautiful day climbing a peak in the Rockies. Beautiful, not a cloud in the sky sunshine, blue all around. Then it's about 11 o'clock in the morning. And then you start seeing little wispy white clouds. And then they begin to build. And before you know it, on the horizon, things are changing. And there's sun shining down on you, but you hear thunder. There's a storm coming. There's an apocalyptic storm coming. And if you're above tree line, you are in trouble. There is no shelter. Chad Kern and I, climbed under a Manzanita bush and sat there for more than an hour when we got caught in a thunderstorm above Treeline in the Sierra Nevada. It was miserable. So John sees the lamb open one of the seals and then he heard the noise of thunder. There's a storm coming. When the lamb starts to open the seals, there is an apocalyptic storm coming to this earth that no man can stop immediately followed by thunder, his opening of the seals. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, and one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. I think this little phrase here, come and see, uttered to John is instrumental or significant because it tells us the role of the church during the tribulation. If you want to know what the church is doing during the tribulation, there it is. Come and see. We're on the sidelines watching. We're seeing the storm. We're seeing the power of God. We're seeing His judgment. We're seeing from the sidelines all things come to fruition. You see, John was a type of the church when he was raptured in the, directly to heaven. John is a type of the church when he's told to come and see. Now, some people look at this and say, well, the word and see is not really part of the Scripture, and it's not the beast talking to John. It's the beast saying, come to the, fo- to the horse. So it's the beast saying, come to the rider on the horse. That doesn't fit the syntax there. That's, that's just a wrong interpretation. This is being spoken to John, come and see. And I think it indicates for us the role of the church during the tribulation. Sit back and rest and watch what I'm going to do. It's very, it's very important that you understand something here in verse 1. The Lamb opens the seals, the beast says, come and see, and then we see the result of that opening of the seal in verse 2. The judgments that we're going to see in Revelation, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the vile judgments, everything that follows in chapter 6 to the end of the book is instigated by the Lamb. It's not instigated by Satan, it's not instigated by the Antichrist, it is Christ that brings the judgment. So even Antichrist, even his rise and fall, even Satan's actions, it's all brought about by God. It's all brought about by Christ. It's all judgment. Now the Antichrist might think he's going to take over the world and overthrow Christ, but he's just a stream of water in the hand of a sovereign God that rules over everything. Turn to Proverbs 21.1. Next time you get really depressed and upset about a presidential election or some politic, political nonsense here in America, just read this verse. You'll be comforted. Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever He will. The kings of the earth, their hearts, their minds, their wills are in the hand of God. And God turns it whatever direction He wants to turn it. Just like He did with King Nebuchadnezzar when He humbled him. Just like He did with King Cyrus the Great, using Cyrus's decree to allow the Jews to return to their homeland. 538 BC. Just like he did with Artaxerxes Longamanus, the Persian monarch who issued that decree in the book of Nehemiah that the city of Jerusalem and its streets would be rebuilt. Just like he did with Alexander the Great, the great horn of the he-goat, the great horn of the third beast that would overthrow the Persians. Just like it was written, the first king of Grecia. God controls all of these things. Even the Judgments. And so the coming of Antichrist isn't the product per se of human or satanic action as much as it is the product of God's action. It is judgment. Antichrist is God's judgment on the world, giving the world what it wants. Just like the president we have in this country today is judgment on this wicked nation. The fault is not... The president, it's the people, and Obama is the judgment. The Congress, Republicans and Democrats, it's the judgment of God. All the homosexuality, all the media bias, all the stuff they're trying to shove down our throat, it's the judgment of God. Because we don't desire the things of God. Just like Israel in the wilderness, just like Israel in the land, they didn't care. We're the same way. But even the Prince of this world, even his Superman, the Antichrist, is like water in the hand of God. These judgments come from God. So what follows is not the wrath of the devil, it's not the wrath of Antichrist, it's the wrath of the Lamb. And my friends, we've not been appointed to wrath as the church. So why would we be here on the earth during that time, suffering the wrath of God, when Jesus Christ has purchased us from the wrath of God? Again, Evidence that the church is raptured out by God's grace, just like Enoch was before the flood. Enoch, a type of the church raptured out before the judgment. Noah, a type of Israel preserved through the judgment. These judgments come from the Lamb. Now, Revelation 6 all the way through 18, this tribulation period, what we're going to see is a tremendous bombardment of judgment ahead of Armageddon. Armageddon is the invasion. Think of Armageddon as Christ invading the earth. Just like the Allies invaded Normandy. What did they do before they put ground troops on the beaches in northern France? What did they do for days ahead of that? Bombed Bombed them. Bombardment. Weakened the defenses. Then we send the troops in. That's exactly what God's going to do. He's going to bombard this earth for seven years. And then the ground forces are going to come in. And at the head of those ground forces is the true white horse rider. He's got his vesture dipped in blood. A name that only he knows. Many crowns on his head. A sword proceeding from his mouth. So look at the judgments as that preemptive strike. And it... A preemptive strike that demonstrates Christ's power to the entire world prior to his invasion. We see countless examples of this in history. I've already mentioned World War II, but I think of Gettysburg where on the third day of battle, Lee's armies were in a position, they thought of strength, and so he decided to put everything he had in a march to break the Union lines. And it came so close... And if they would have broke the Union lines and taken that hill and scattered the Union army, the war might have ended differently. They call it the high-water mark of the Confederacy, Pickett's Charge in 1863. Before Lee sent Pickett's troops across that field to break the Union line, they set up cannon all along the hillsides and they just unleashed a terrible ferocious bombardment upon the Union lines. The problem is A lot of the cannons overshot their targets, and it didn't have the effect that General Lee hoped it would have. And as a result, Pickett's forces met, strengthened defenses, and ultimately the attempt failed. The war would drag on for several more years, but everyone agrees that that point changed the tide, ultimately. So there was that tremendous bombardment ahead of a ground invasion. It was amazing that the Confederates came that close anyway. Same thing happened in Desert Storm in the 90s. What did we do before we sent troops on the ground? We blasted Iraq and Saddam Hussein's forces so that when the ground troops actually went in, there was no resistance. There's videotapes of Iraqis surrendering without even shots being fired, running up to American tanks and troops begging them to have mercy because that air attack was so effective. That's what's happening in the tribulation, divine bombardment. Now we're going to see with the first seals, the first few seals, that the judgments are more natural phenomenon, where God is using natural phenomenon as judgment, but then they become supernatural. So it's not just man-made war, man-caused famine, man-caused economic disaster. It becomes supernatural stuff. Armies coming out of the bottomless pit, locusts and creatures that bite and harm men, hail and fire mixed with blood. So it is a tremendous bombardment ahead of a land invasion. So that by the time Christ returns the seal, the scroll is completely open. So He takes it in chapter 5. He opens it unleashing judgment, a preemptive strike, so that when He returns in chapter 19, the scroll is totally unsealed. It's totally open for public reading. The evidence is there. He has the right and the authority to rule. And friends, it won't be much of a fight. It won't be like Gettysburg where it drags out all day it won't be like Normandy where even after the bombing, the land invasion took place and there was question as to the outcome. It'll be quick. It'll be quick. There won't be, no, there won't be debate with the Antichrist. He'll just be picked up by the scruff of his neck and tossed alive into the lake of fire. Won't even be a fight. So what happens here in chapter 6 is instigated by the Lamb. Not Humanity. They are just instruments in the hands of God to bring about God's redemptive purposes, God's eternal purposes for the earth, for Israel, for the church, for the kingdom. And I saw, verse 2, And behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. This first seal judgment is a white horse rider. We see a white horse in Revelation 19. It's the Messiah. This is not the Messiah here. This is an imitator. An imitator. A phony. And we're going to get more into that next week. So anyway, I'd like to encourage you, it's, it's late, but I'd like to encourage you, I've put some things here on the back side of this sheet, particularly as references the Antichrist okay I believe here in chapter 6 verse 2 we have the Antichrist introduced to the world he's summoned by the lamb in the breaking of the seal and he's unleashed on the world there's a lot of scripture that talks about the Antichrist and I'm not going to get into that right now when we get into Revelation uh, chapter 13 the beast out of the sea that is the Antichrist we'll talk more about this but I've listed a lot of scriptures Concerning Antichrist, and it might be a good personal study for you on the back. He is foretold in the Scripture, not only here by John in Revelation, but he's foretold by Jesus, John 5. Isaiah has a foreview in multiple places in the book of Isaiah. Daniel has a foreview multiple places in the book of Daniel. Paul has a foreview in 2 Thessalonians 2. And then John, of course, has a greater foreview in chapters 13 and 17 of this book. So you guys might find that an interesting study. Some of you probably never read some of those passages from Isaiah and Daniel. But Antichrist has many names. Just like Jesus has many names. He is an opposing Christ. But even in all of that, he's just an instrument in the hand of God to bring about God's purposes. So you might find this interesting on the back. I'm not going to go into the detail with all these verses because I definitely want to move ahead. So next week, we'll get into the seal judgments, the first four of which are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, beginning with the white horse rider. Does anybody have any questions? Yes. I hate to do that. It's so nice, but uh, if you guys want to do it, maybe I'll let you do it next week. Okay? We'll actually open the scroll, all right? Get an idea of what that looks like. Alright, anybody else have any questions? Let me give you another passage of Scripture to write down. Um, There's a passage in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 6, 1 through 8, that talk about four chariots of horses. And I want you, when you're thinking about these four horses of Revelation 6, not the riders... But the horses themselves, I want you to cross-reference this passage in Zechariah because I think there's another important truth here that further verifies what I've just said about the Lamb and God Himself instigating these judgments. The power's not in Antichrist, it's in what's given to Him. Just like Jesus told Pilate, He said, Don't you know I have power to crucify you? Why don't you defend yourself? Jesus got You have no power unless it's given to you from above. Antichrist has no power unless it's given by God. Antichrist can't even come to power unless it's given by God. Antichrist can't even be carried to power unless it's given by God. He's carried to power here in chapter 6 on a white horse. Read Zechariah 6 and you'll draw draw an interesting comparison about the horses themselves. Alright, good, I only went for it minutes over. If you guys could uh, just be praying for Nate and I, next week will be my last week of teaching for a while. A week from tomorrow, we're heading to South Africa. So we have to drive to Washington, D.C. and We're going to fly out there. I'm really praying God uh, provides a place to park our vehicle up there safe near the airport. It's not completely worked out yet, so you guys can be praying about that. And we'll be back, Lord Will, on the 1st of April. So we're real excited. This will be Nate's first mission trip outside the country. And I know Ricky's a little lonely, so he's real excited about us coming. So um, hopefully you guys will have some good teaching from the elders and stuff while I'm gone. And I hope this is a blessing to you, but sometimes we need to take a little bit of a break because our minds can be overloaded. Um, But anyway, let's pray over the meal. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for another opportunity to delve into your Word and to taste and see that you are good. To taste of the riches the wellspring of wisdom found therein. Lord, thank you for these brethren, every one of them. Thank you for the fellowship we have here in this home, for what you've brought together. Thank you for the leadership of this church, Lord. Thank you for blessing us with little children, Lord, in abundance that we hope will grow up if you tarry and be instruments for your glory in this, on this earth. Lord, we commit the food to you. Ask that you would give us strength. Thank you for the hands that have prepared it. Lord, bless our fellowship around the table. And Lord, we look forward to coming together again, Lord, in these days where we still have freedom to gather without fear of real persecution. But when those days do come, I pray you give us strength to endure. Mm -hmm. All these things I pray in Jesus' name, amen.